0: So as we get together, it's a time for strengthening. It's a time for reminder. It's a time for saying, what What is this all about? Because you can get distracted out there, can't we? And so again, it's coming back and it's saying, what's the best? Am Am I pursuing excellence? Am I pursuing the best? Or am I settling for the better? we'll see this this morning in this particular passage. This is a a terrific chapter, chapter 8 of uh, 1 Samuel. But I want to call your attention to a number of passages. You have them in your notes this morning. And I I submit to you, these are just representative. Really, the the testimony of all of Scripture is the same. But these passages are familiar to us. And uh, they are worthy of your consideration, certainly worthy of committing to memory. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6... Solomon says, trust in the Lord with most of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. <laughs> What's so funny, Ramon? With all your heart. Oh, I missed that part. It really should say, trust in the Lord with most of your heart. No. Part of your heart. No. Well, that's because of what we do, right? Yeah. That's true. Trust in the Lord with oh. all of your heart you suppose he's serious about that? I wonder, have we ever really given ourselves fully to anything? Have we really given ourselves our all to anything? And if we were to, the one thing we' to give ourselves all to the one person is certainly the Lord. I think that's the point of that phrase. It's not just a, a general saying. He really means it. Maybe for the, the the first time in a person's life, give yourself all to him. And for you know many people and many Christians, unfortunately, they they, they really don't understand that. Dale and Victoria were our guests at the for couples only last week, and uh, and, and it was remarkable to me how their their testimony in their life, and I know them very well, and, and how they have given themselves to Christ and to each other. Uh, and it's obvious. But as much as they've done it, they've not given themselves totally, right? And so there's always room for continuing press on in. Let's press on in. All that to say trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In other words, I'm going to trust in what he says. I'm going to believe this book. I'm going to believe that these are the words of God transmitted to me in propositional form, that I might read them, understand them, comprehend them, and, and apply them. I'm going to trust this. I'm not going to trust what I, what I think, some speculation, uh, what somebody else tells me. I'm going to go right to the source. Trust in Him, not myself. Don't lean on my own understanding. I'm going to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm going to pray before I open my mouth. That's a novel idea, isn't it? I'm tempted to say something. I'm going to lean on my own understanding. Well, i got some bright thought. I'm going to let you know what I think. Best I shut up and pray before I open my mouth. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Not in just some of my ways, in all of my ways. That, these are disciplines that as we learn to practice them, they will stand us in great stead. And He says, if you will do these things, I will make your paths straight. Now to me, that sounds just like another way of saying, I'll give you the best. You want the best? Here's the pathway to the best. Trust in me, not in yourself. Acknowledge me in all your ways. In other words, put me first. Put my will first. And I'll give you the best. Now, acknowledging him also, the implication there is that, is that we don't define what the best is. See? Well, I want the best, God, and, and I'm, let me tell you what the best is. No. See, if you're really trusting in Him, then what He chooses to provide is the best. And often we don't recognize that until after the fact. Isn't that true? We go, uh, duh. (laughs) Now I see. I understand. Jesus puts it this way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. The context is, He says, don't be worried, don't be anxious, don't be fretting or anything. He says what? Here's Here's the secret. Here's the secret. You want the best? Seek first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, seek first God's priorities. What does God want? What what is his will? Put these things first. And then he says, all these other things will be taken care of. You'll have the best. You don't have to worry about it. What happens when we don't put God first? When we don't put his kingdom first, when we don't seek him with all of our heart, and so forth. We end up frustrated. We end up settling for less than the best, and inevitably we find ourselves living a life full of what? Regrets. We look back and say, oh, why didn't I listen? What was I thinking? Why didn't I pay attention? Why didn't I? Can anybody relate to what I'm saying? In Matthew chapter 10, again, Jesus talks about the cost of being a disciple. He says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The idea, again, is priorities. Our love for our, 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 our close relatives, spouses, parents, children, our love for them must, in comparison to our love for him, look like hate. It's hard for us to comprehend. Because we can't see him. We, we can't touch him. He's, he doesn't sit across the table from us. He doesn't rub our tummy. It's all by faith. He says, anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want the best? Want the best? Really? Then it's going to require require a pressing on in to this relationship with Him. It's as simple as that. No one else, nobody else in all of your life and my life, no one else can make the kind of difference that only He can make. No one else can do the things that we need done in our life except Him. We can help each other. We can love each other, hug each other, pray for each other, you know, encourage one another. But nobody can make the dramatic changes and do the miraculous things in our life that he can do. says, you want the best or you just want the better. Are you willing to settle for less? Paul in Romans chapter 12 echoes this whole same sentiment. He uses different words, different phraseology. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's what? Mercy. Mercy. Has God been merciful to us? If you don't know that by now, merciful. God, thank you that you have been merciful to me. You have not given me what I deserve. You've given me what I don't deserve. God, you've been merciful to me. It's a whole perspective, isn't it? In view of that mercy, offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, not, not the same old dead sacrifices that uh, the Jews would be familiar with offered on the altar. Living sacrifice. Again, what's a living sacrifice? A living sacrifice is someone who wants the best. If I can just contextualize it in terms of our everyday life, you want to, let's say that you're in school and you're studying and you really, really, really want to move ahead and you want to get that advanced degree and, you, and there's so many placements in the graduate school and so forth. You've got to really work hard, don't you? You press in. Why? Because you want the best. It's easy to settle for less than the best. But later on in your life, you look and you say, I could have had a V8. Am I making sense? Offer your body a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. This is how you worship God. He says, and don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this whole process, as he describes it, leads to this, to this climactic conclusion. He says, then, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. And he characterizes God's will as what? Good, pleasing, and perfect. Perfect. The best. So the question becomes, do I want the best or am I willing to settle for the better? You say, well, I don't know that there's all that much difference between the best and the best. Oh, there's a vast gulf of difference between the two. There's a vast gulf between the best and the better. If I want the best, I have to make up my mind. I have to make up my mind to seek God with all my heart, not half-heartedly. You read the first, first Samuel and you see the contrast between Saul and David, and we're going to study Saul next week. You see the contrast between Saul and David and the scriptures pointedly say that David served God with his whole heart, Saul served him half-heartedly. And you see the effect in both the lives of those men. You want the best? Seek God. Seek His will. Be willing to not lean on your own understanding, not your own human wisdom. Be willing to deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Him. This is, the, this is the message of 1 Samuel. This is the message of 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is the message of the whole Bible, really, isn't it? Now, the book of 1 Samuel is fascinating reading. And if you've been following along in our daily reading, you've noted that. And it, just, for in, just for sheer interest, 1 Samuel is really kind of unsurpassed. Not only does it record eventful history, But it is eventful history interwoven with the lives of three very, very fascinating personalities. Who might those three personalities be? Samuel, Saul, and David. And they are all distinctly different, aren't they? And they are fascinating to read. The book of 1 Samuel opens with the birth of Samuel, which was a miraculous birth to begin with. Marvelous account. Hannah and Eli, the high priest... Samuel would be the last of the judges. The whole book of Judges recounts a, a series of leaders that God raises up to restore justice and administrate justice in Israel. Uh, and then the book of Ruth, we looked at last time, the book of Ruth is set in the context of the time of Judges. So now here's Samuel, who is the very last judge. So for Samuel chronicles... Uh, the beginning of Samuel's life, and it runs clear through to the death of Saul. And interwoven in that, we find David. This book car- uh, covers approximately about 115 years in terms of time, and it's divided into three major sections. The first seven chapters focus primarily on Samuel, and chapter 8 through uh, 15 focus on Saul. And then chapter 16 through 31 focus on David. And even though there are those three major divisions uh, in the book, the counts of these three men obviously overlap. As you read it, you see Samuel lives well on into the reign of Saul and also sees David rise to prominence, while Samuel, or Saul uh, just continues to reign on until David is 30 years old. So you see this terrific overlap of these three, these three men. First Samuel is a book about transition, and more particularly about the transition from uh, the theocracy to the monarchy. The theocracy, very simply, was uh, Israel was meant to be, to be ruled by God. God was their king. He was an invisible king. But they were to trust in him, and he was to be their sovereign, very simply. That's a theocracy. The monarchy uh, would be a period where they would have a visible, temporal, earthly human king like all the nations around them. And so 1 1 Samuel chronicles a transition between the theocracy and the monarchy. And uh, it's the book of these three remarkable men. Samuel, as I said, the last of the judges. Saul, who would be the first of the kings. And then David, the greatest of all of Israel's kings. If there's a central spiritual message in this book, it boils down to this that God had called Israel into a very unique relationship with himself. He was, again, to be their king. He was their king. And would they accept him? Would they submit to him? Or would they reject him? Through disobedience, uh, the Israelites had brought chastisement on themselves again and again and again. We saw this uh, signal clearly in the book of Judges. You see them rebelling you see them chasing after false gods, uh, rejecting God. God would bring chastisement on them. And then they would be under a period of bondage and, and uh, chastisement and suffer terrifically. And then they'd cry out to God for deliverance. They'd repent. And God would send a judge who raised raise up a deliverer, and he would uh, free them from the bondage of the Philistines or the Ammonites or such. And then they, they would live uh, in, in peace and prosperity for a season. But that as soon as that judge died off, the people would revert back to their old evil practices, and the the scriptures say they were worse than they were before. And they would go through another period of chastisement. So this is this happened again and again and again. Now later on, what happened is the people began to attribute their difficulties to the fact that they simply had no human king to rule over them. In other words, it wasn't their fault. They wanted a king like everybody else had. It's not my fault. I don't have what so-and-so has. See, if I just had what they had, then I wouldn't have these difficulties. Have you ever heard anybody say something like that? If I just had money like they have. Or if I lived in Manhattan Beach like those guys live. If I had this or that or the other thing. In chapter 8, we're told that Samuel was old and that his sons were perverse. The people make this the occasion to press for a king. To make this change. Chapter 8, if you haven't read it, read it closely, read it carefully. Because it records a step not of faith, but a step of unbelief. A step of people who are leaning on their own understanding. People who are stepping back from trusting in God with all their hearts. It records a step away from God's very best. This is a critical, critical juncture. And it speaks to every single one of us. Because all of us are sorely tempted by our own human weakness, by spiritual forces of darkness, by the world to settle. Aren't we? To live in mediocrity. Spiritual mediocrity we wonder why there's no power in my life. Why can't I make any headway? Why do I still struggle with these things? It's all found in this particular chapter. This step was dictated merely by seeming expediency. In other words, it, it, just, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Samuel's old. His sons are are degenerate. They're not going to be able to rule. We need help. What's expedient? What seems logical? What seems reasonable? Well, all the other nations around us have a king. We're the only ones who don't have a king. Give us a king. Never mind that God is our king. Give us one we can see. It's the way of human wisdom. We're constantly seeking human wisdom. When was the last time you picked up the Word of God and you said, God, speak to me, speak to me, teach me, teach me. I want to know your heart. I want to know your will. I want to know you. And and all the while your life is crumbling around you. When was the last time we sought Him? Now we're, we're running after human wisdom all over the place. We get advice over the back, backyard fence. We talk to the local gossip. We seek psychological counseling. We, we talk to everybody under the sun, except we, we don't sit at God's feet. We don't humble ourselves. And we don't say, God, you teach me. John says you have no need for men to teach you. The Holy Spirit will teach you. You just need to sit still and be quiet and listen. Search his word. Listen to him. Commit yourself to him. Commit your way to him. This step on the part of Israel at this juncture in their history was a was step of taking the lower road. Not the high road. They were taking the lower road. They, they were taking the lower level the path of least resistance, the easy way, the expedient way. It's a refusing of God's best for that which was second best, less than best. And beloved, again, there is much difference between the two. When you taste the best, you don't want anything less. My wife was a flight attendant for American Airlines for a lot of years. And, and when we got married, uh, she still flew for a couple of years. And I, she would say, and I was still in school in seminary and studying, and, 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 and uh, she's going to go out on a two or three day trip. And, and she said, you want to go with me? And I said, no. She says, come on. we were flying to Boston. 747. No, I'm working first class. No, we have Chateaubriand going and Prime Rib coming back. No, she says you can have as many hot fried Sundays as you want. So I used to fly with her. we just, just lay over, you know, is. First time just blew me away i 'd never done this, and we stayed at the at the Sheraton right downtown Boston. unbelievable. The next day, coming home, flying back home on this turnaround flight, there was the Boston marathon and so here 's the captain of this airplane banking the seven hundred forty seven on both sides so that everyone could look out and see the Boston Marathon <laughs> The point I want to make that 's just. The point I want to make is when you fly first class, you do not want to fly coach. And in those days, how long? that was what? Almost, what, 25 years ago? Almost 30 years ago. We've been married that long? My word. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, when you've had the best... You don't want second best. I don't fly unless I go first class. That's why I don't fly. <laughs> Can you dig it? Shoot. You see, the Israelites, the people thought that this was, this was the only way to solve Their many problems and make life easier for them. This is the thought that's the only way. Hello? What about God? Don't leave God out of the equation. See, if only they could have a visible human king like all the other nations have, that would solve their problems. No. No, it's not going to solve their problems. Repentance And turning to God and walking with Him and seeking out after Him with all your heart is the solution to everything. It's that simple. Not easy, though, is it? And the people would eventually learn how self-deceived they were in asking for this king. A whole new set of troubles would arise You know, the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side of the fence. you still got to mow it. Comes with a whole new set of problems, doesn't it? Listen to what uh, God instructs Samuel to tell the people, beginning of verse 10 of chapter 8, about what it's going to be like if they really want a king. What's life going to be? It's not going to be a bed of roses. They haven't thought this through. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. They said this is what the king uh, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and of yourselves. You will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. In other words, he's going to tax the dickens out of you. He's going to take your kids. Life's going to change. And then one day it's going to dawn on you, what have we asked for? And you're going to cry out for relief. And God's going to say, that's what you wanted, that's what you got. That verse has always instructed me to, to always amend my prayers with God. But if this is not what you want for me, don't let me have it. Because sometimes, you know, I got it all figured out. I mean, after all, I'm a pastor. I got it all figured. I know what God. I know His will. All right. So okay, God. Now let me tell you. Do it this, this way. This way. This way. This way. I've learned. I'm still learning. God, don't answer this prayer in the affirmative, please, if this is not your will. Amen? Beloved, this is the central message of 1 Samuel. Troubles increase. Troubles increase, not decrease, through choosing the seemingly easier but lower way of human wisdom. Troubles increase when you choose human wisdom in preference to God's way by choosing less than God's best. This is a challenge to parents to teach our kids, train up our kids to aspire to God's best. God's best. What's God's best? We're not going to realize it until we understand those verses that I uh, laid out for you in the beginning. This is a parent's job to inspire their kids to live their lives in such a manner that their kids want God's best. Proverbs 14, 14 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death and we're we're very clever we're very bright we're very educated we're very sophisticated in our ways and and we can we can figure things out we say, oh i got the answer here's the way to go let's do it that way seems right seems to make sense seems logical but if we haven't submitted it to him if we haven't brought everything in obedience to christ if we're not knowing what god's will is and living for him uh, beloved we are just blowing smoke Look at the first verses of chapter 8 here. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So here's, Sam, here's Samuel's getting old. He's not not able to maintain all the duties of the judge. So he appoints his sons, but uh, unwittingly, he's not aware that his sons are perverting justice. They're corrupt. And so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways, now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. In other words, that, from that perspective, that was their only option. You're getting old, you're going to die. Your sons are corrupt. The only option, the only thing that we see to do is to appoint us a king like the other nations have. Was that their only option? No, of course not. But sometimes you can get so narrow in your thinking, it looks like that's your only option, huh? Rather than stepping back and say, okay, Lord, I, I know there's other options here, I just don't see them. And rather than trusting in that which is expedient, the quick and the dirty, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to wait on you, as Isaiah says. So the request, the request for a king, who does the request for a king come from? Who' does it come from?? Look at the verse again. Who comes to Samuel? The elders? This is not just some rabble. This is not some group of protesters standing out in front of the White House with placards, yelling and screaming. No, these are the elders. Men of years, men of presumable high standing. The elders come. and They're not dissatisfied with Samuel. They accord him proper respect. But in view of his advanced age and with the perverseness of his sons, they say, we we want a government like the other nations have. We want a government like the other nations have. They want Samuel to sanction this change. That's why they come to him. They were certainly considerate about this. They were deliberate about it. But they were wrong. They were wrong. Their eyes were away from God. Now this request, I want to suggest to you in verse 4, this request didn't, probably didn't come out of a prayer meeting out of a committee meeting. <laughs> they put their heads together. They saw the situation. Nowhere in the text are we told that they sought the Lord. Although in the next couple verses, we see that Samuel sees, seeks the Lord. Samuel prays. The elders should have, pray, should have been praying. Would you agree? Yeah. And now they're determined to take this backward step instead of going on with God. I want to press on with God. God, we don't know how you're going to do this. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to trust you. We're going to wait upon you. We're going to seek your face. Remember, I suggested some time ago, I said, don't do what you're tempted to do. Do what you're tempted not to do. That'll always stand you in good stead. I'm tempted to, don't do it. What are you tempted not to do? Do that. Wait on the Lord. Now look at Samuel's reaction in verse 6. But when they had said this, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. Why? Why was he displeased? One, because he knew this was not the way to go. They're in a parent around. They can't relate to that, huh? Dad, Mom, give me this, give me this, give me this. Displeased. It doesn't please me that you ask for this. Now remember, Samuel is, is such that, that, that he's tight with God. Is that a fair statement? You think Samuel's tight with God? Yeah. And so he takes this request, I think, personally. He takes it personally. This, this is, he, takes it, he takes it as rejection of him also. Of, of his leadership. It's a kind of a vote of no confidence in the next step. Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord. God, what should we do here? What should I tell the people? Now he could have very easily said, no, this is not God's way. But he, before he says anything, he prays. You may... You may want to give somebody a piece of your mind or some advice or some counsel or something. Before you say anything, what should you do? Pray. Pray. God, what would you have me say, if anything? Verse 7, And the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. Now notice this. It is not you they have rejected as their king, but me. That is the key verse. they rejected Him. They want this. This is better than the best. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the King will do who will reign over them. And We read those verses earlier. Look at verse 19. After Samuel tells them what to expect, we read, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. Now it's emphatic. No. We want a king over us. So the request now becomes a demand. Have you ever ever noticed that? You, You request something of God and you're very polite in your prayers. And it doesn't happen, so you begin to become demanding to God. God, I want this now. (laughs) Look at verse 22. What happens in verse 22? God says what? Give them what they want. Give them their king. Oh, 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 no! (laughs) Give them what they want. You know, if we could become very, very insistent about what we want. I mean, I've seen this again and again and again. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. All right, if you insist. If you insist. Now, there's three things, I think, that, that need to be noted about this demand for a king. Three things that are very, very instructive to us. Number one, the outer reason. Why did they want a king? What's the what's the apparent reason? You know, there's always there's always two reasons for doing something. There's the apparent reason. There's the real reason. We always give the outer reason, to the apparent reason. We always say, well, thus and such, when in fact that's really not the real reason. So whenever you're talking to somebody and they tell you some rationalization, you you have to stop and think, yeah, but what's the real reason? (laughs) I mean, what's underneath that? The outer reason was very simply what? Samuel was old and his sons were perverse. This is the occasion. And the outer reason, or the apparent reason, gives rise to the inner motive. What's really going on inside? What's the real reason? that the people might become like the other nations. Oh, that the people might become like the other nations. How many, how many, it's your favorite thing to be different? Yeah, we want to be like everybody else. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be different. I don't want people to point at me and laugh. and... And so we conform, don't we? What did Paul say? Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. We conform. Why? We want to be accepted. We want to fit in. We don't want to be laughed at, mocked, etc. They want to become like the other nations, which gives rise to the deeper meaning. And they were oblivious to this. And the same is true of us. And here's the deeper meaning of all this. They were simply rejecting God. They are rejecting the theocracy. They are rejecting God. This is the most serious thing of all. I want what I want. And I'm going to give you an apparent reason, an apparent rationalization for it. But that really masks the, the inner motive. The inner motive is, I just want it because. But I'm too embarrassed to tell you the real truth. But it really masks something deeper. And that is a, that is a rejection of God. Why oh, I would never reject God. Yes, you do. You reject Him all the time when you don't obey Him, when you don't trust Him. And God emphasizes this in verses 7 and 8. He tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. This is the reality of it all. What a tragedy. Absolute tragedy. How many today? Bright, hopeful, Apparently, earnest Christians have been spoiled through wanting to be like the people of the world around them, ultimately rejecting God in his very best. I had a conversation with a young young lady a couple weeks ago, real real, real cute, real attractive young black girl, who uh, was wearing a ring in her nose. You know what I'm talking about? And so, I'm, you know, I'm talking to her. I can't get my eyes off that ring. Now, you know these the things are a real favorite of mine, right? So I, I, I couldn't stop. I said, what, 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 what's with this? Well, you know, she gave me all this stuff. It's stylish. It's cool. It's modern. It's hip. It's, you know, all that stuff. I like it. I said, I, did you know that um, in the history of slavery that, uh, that the slavers put rings in the noses of the female slaves? I didn't know that. Yeah. To lead them around. And, and all you've done is gone back to a slave mentality. You're a slave of the world. You've made yourself a slave of the world. All someone has to just put a little chain in that and carry you around. You belong to the world. She was not real happy. <laughs> How insidious... How insidious is the temptation to lean on that which is seen and in human instead of resting in the invisible God. I had a conversation with a man yesterday I'm discipling and He was telling me that he he had went and gotten coffee last week in a in this little coffee place down in Hermosa someplace, and it's run by this New age gal who has all the Indian Hindu Eastern stuff hanging all over the place. You know, and he's, he's talked a little bit with her and and I said to him, I said, Well when you go back down there to have coffee, you know, and she asks how are you doing, she says, tell her tell her I'm loved. I'm loved. I said that's gonna open the door for a terrific conversation. <laughs> You're loved. Obviously, who are you loved by? The invisible God. The one true God. I'm loved. See, do we believe that? Is it just an intellectual uh, category for us? Or do we really believe that He loves me? And I'm secure. I don't need to panic. I don't need to reach for expediencies. I can trust Him. I can bring my life in line with Him. And He'll enable me even to do that if I just ask for help. It's a temptation to which we're all prone. But to yield to it invites a harvest of regrets. You know, the people, when they choose, the uh, when, they, when they demand a king, you know what they're doing? They're demanding to exercise their right of self-determination. You ever heard that phrase? The right of self-determination. It's my life. I can do with it as I please. I want this. I'm going to go this way. And the heck with you. Let me read to you a classic example of this. Exercising of the right of self-determination. Isaiah chapter 14. Tell me who you think this might be. Verse 13. I will ascend to heaven I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the Sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Who does that sound like? Yeah. Here is the most powerful, the most beautiful, the highest of all of God's created order, called the Anointed Cherub, the one who stood at the very throne of God. Remember the, the Ark of the Covenant? There were two cherubim. Here's the anointed cherub who exercised, demanded and exercised the right of self-determination. I will, I will, I will, I will. Nowhere in there do we read where he says, I will acknowledge the Lord in all my ways. I will trust in Him with all my heart. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. Nowhere. And this is exactly what the people do. James says, you know, he says, don't say you're going to go here, go there tomorrow. It says, if the Lord wills, don't make plans, except that you amend them if the Lord wills. And God gave them what they wanted. And God gave them what they wanted. Now think about this for a second. Might it be that they were weary now, listen closely. Might it be that they were weary of this particular theocratic form of government which made their well-being dependent on their own right conduct? Think about that. Their own well-being was dependent on their right conduct. Deuteronomy chapter 28, God said, If you obey me, I will Bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. So under God's economy of things, their well-being was dependent on their what? On their right conduct, on their walking in obedience. Might they have gotten weary of that? Isn't it just like human beings to want to find an easier way to do things? Perhaps they supposed that a form of government under a human king would relieve them somewhat of that responsibility so that their well-being would rest more on the character of the government and the qualities of the king himself rather than their own conduct. We have that today in our own country. People abdicating personal responsibility for their own lives, transferring the responsibility onto the government. You take care of me from cradle to grave. Now, we have a certain responsibility to care for those who are less fortunate but not to the scope that's going on today. Not to the, to the degree that people are surrendering their responsibility, not just their rights, their responsibilities. It's human nature. It's human nature to give up. It's human nature to take the lowest seat. It's human nature to take the easiest way. It's human nature to feel weary. This is why you and I must walk in the Spirit. Not in our own strength. Am I making sense? But even in giving them a king, even as God accedes to their demand and gives them a king, the king is still made directly responsible to God and the people are no less responsible to God through him. They're still responsible. So, so God is still maintaining his theocratic rule over the nation even though he gives them the king. Israel's king was not to be autocratic. He wasn't to be a despot. He wasn't to be like Pharaoh and, and the other, other kings. He was to be a theocratic ruler, God's vice-regent. Now, you can somewhat understand, I think, the feelings of Israel's or the, the elder's desire for a human king. There, there's, there's always trouble around, isn't there? I mean, the the Philistines on the west, the the Ammonites on the east, are always threatening to attack them. There had to be an understandable anxiety on the part of the elders of Israel that they had no visible leader. No one had been raised up. Samuel's getting old. The sons are, 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 are perverse. There doesn't seem to be anybody on the scene. Maybe the only solution is to have a king. And they may indeed have felt somewhat stigmatized and or diminished in the eyes of the surrounding nations because they didn't have a king. They didn't have somebody they could point to with pride. Our king. We have a king too. See, we have a king too. Like you guys. Notwithstanding all that, they were still wrong. And the people's asking for a king was actually anticipated by God. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Write these verses down. you can read them on your own. We won't have time. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. God actually anticipates it. But He gives them, in the context of that passage, He gives the king instructions for how he is to rule. God puts narrow limits on that king. And it could be also that the elders of Israel, in knowing that passage in Deuteronomy inferred from it, that maybe really God meant for them to have a king. Well, after all, God gave instructions here for a king, so maybe we should have one. You can twist scripture any way you want, can't you? You can make it say anything you want. You can rationalize anything with the Bible. So instead of being gratefully anxious to preserve the blessings and the liberties that they were experiencing under the theocracy, God's rule... Again, they insisted on being ruled as the other nations under a king. Saul would be the first king. Samuel would go ahead and anoint Saul as the first king. And beloved, as we shall see next week, Saul was one of the most striking and at the same time tragic figures in the entire Old Testament. I've written, actually I I didn't write it, I, I... found this verse. I didn't know where to attribute it to. There was no attribution to it, but I included it in your notes. I thought it so worthwhile. I want to encourage you to just to read along with me. It's in your notes. God has His best things for the few who dare to stand the test. Say that with me. God has His best things for the few who dare to stand the test. God has His second choice for those who who will not take his best. It is not always open ill that risks the promised rest. The better often is the foe that keeps us from the best. And others make the highest choice, but when by trials pressed, they shrink, they yield, they shun the cross, and so they lose the best. I can't think of a better... Better passage to inspire people and to inspire kids on to the best. Beloved, if you're to realize God's best, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Memorize those verses, memorize them, make them part of your life your frame of reference, your very being, pursue God with all your heart. He'll make your path straight. You'll experience His best. And you'll never, ever, once you've tasted the best, you've tasted and seen how good the Lord is, you will not want to settle for less. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You again. We love You this morning. Thank You, Lord, for Your instruction, for the reminders, for the challenges for those things that convict us. Fathers, we come to the table this morning to remember and to commemorate the passage of our lives from death to life, our salvation, Your great purpose and plan in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would all be taken again and renewed and refreshed by Your Spirit, by Your grace to pursue You with all of our heart, to not lean on our own understanding, trust You in all of our ways. Lord, we love You this morning. We give You praise. We give You thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.